You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Hot Stove Report. Going, going, goodbye baseball. On 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle app. It is time for the Hot Stove Show. Happy, as always, you can join us. Aaron Goldsmith, Shannon Dreher, Gary Hill, Donahue, Jack Wilder running things for us, and Mariners Hall of Famer, Dan the Man. Danny, good to see you, my friend. Aaron, everybody, always great seeing all of you, as usual. And as we get to January, things change, and it starts to get like baseball, and this is fun. You still feel that? Like- yeah, oh, yeah, heck yeah. Yeah, it's probably, you know, January 6th was yesterday. This is a Monday, so it's like we're really late. We're into January. We're about a month from reporting. Thanks for yesterday's date. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, you know, that was the big day. Everything oh, that's starts right. January 6th, right? Okay, I'm with That's you. his way of working on the number six. Ooh. Oh, nice. nice. Ah, nice. Well nice. I see what he did. See? Yeah. Very sly. <laughs> We're on your ways early. <laughs> Dreher, good to see you as well. I haven't seen you all off season. No, but I'm glad I know what day it is. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we, uh, we've got uh, plenty of Mariners things to be talking about. We'll be joined by Mariners bullpen coach Brian DeLunis, formerly the, well, formerly the bullpen coach, then the director of pitching development and strategies, and he will resume his bullpen uh, coaching duties this year. We'll be joined by Austin Nola, who is on the Mariners Care Community Tour as we speak right now, alongside Matt Festa. And uh, I, was, I think it's safe to say that Austin was one of the uh, more pleasant surprises last year amongst the Mariners. And I, I know, Shannon, kind of one of the questions that we asked ourselves, uh, and Gary also, as last season went on, is is Austin, is he is this real? Like, is Austin Nola real? And by the summertime, I think it was the consensus, yeah, this is a real thing. He's a 29-year-old rookie who's playing really well and played really well the entire year. And since then, we've been trying to convince people, not only is Austin Nola real, he's a catcher. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> We'll uh, we'll be talking about uh, some of his uh, catching duties uh, this year, playing some winter ball uh, during the off season. Uh, Gary, in the second hour, uh, I think we're we're all very excited for this. Uh, we're going to have a, a chance to really honor one of uh, one of the greats in the organization, Ron Fairley, who of course uh, sadly passed away. Now, Red was on the program with us a couple of years ago. We will replay a couple of those segments with Ron, who had one of the most incredible baseball careers i think it's safe to say of of almost anyone who ever played the game it's amazing and you'll hear it in our conversation it's why i was going through it and let's just play the whole thing because it's incredible he's a guy that could tell a story about sandy koufax or stan musial or ted williams or lou Pinella. it's incredible his baseball life is amazing he played forever was an all-star with both canadian teams only uh, guy to ever do it. Only guy to ever do it. Was a broadcaster for a long time. I mean, he says it. Thousands and thousands of games he was involved in. Uh, what a baseball life and what a man. Um, such a good friend to us. And it, it'll be fun an hour or two to honor him. I know, Dan, there is something maybe a little different in baseball than in the other sports. When when you're in this game for your entire life in variety of roles like like you are doing as a player uh, as a coach as a broadcaster it's a really special thing and unfortunately sometimes it's not appreciated in in the midst of it but uh, certainly looking back on it especially from Ron's standpoint uh, there's no doubt it's it's remarkable it is and and yeah you put together a career like that first as a player I mean obviously playing in a couple of different leagues and and having success a great hitter 
Um, a guy that, uh, like you mentioned, I mean, we, we've heard a lot of Don Drysdale stories from Big Red. And, and uh, you know, you start listening to some of the names uh, he can throw out there, and it's pretty impressive. And you just sit back and you listen, and you learn a lot about the game, and you learn a lot about the way the game used to be and, and uh, a lot of the history. And, and, and like you mentioned, he was, he was a part of it for so long, so you, you really see the evolution of the game. Dan, you did that as a player. I remember seeing Ron around the cages and talking to players. What were those conversations like? That was just a lot of, you know, uh, he, he's seen a lot of players. When you're in the game a long time, you see a lot of players. And so one of the things we like to do is is you can say, oh, you know, you look like this guy that used to play 25 years ago, and his swing was like this, and your swing is very similar. And so there was always a lot of comparisons and, and, and talk about that and um, but, but I, you know, the things that I remember a lot are, are, are the conversations he and Dave Niehaus would have, uh, as they spent a lot of time together on buses and planes. And, you know, as a young player, you sit up close and you, you kind of hear some of the conversations and some of the names that those two guys throw out. And, uh, you know, you, you just sit back and listen because, uh, you're hearing a lot of, of great hall of fame type names and, and you learn a lot about the game. We'll also have a chance uh, tonight to hear from Mariners general manager Jerry DePoto. We're going to hear him discuss a little bit, Shannon, about the um, Evan White extension, which is uh, pretty historic, right? There aren't many guys, uh, only a handful, who have gotten a major league deal without ever playing in the major leagues, or in Evan's case, barely playing in AAA. Uh, but this is uh, was uh, a, hopefully a pretty landmark deal for the franchise, what it allows the Mariners to do with kind of some financial flexibility and also – what they believe will be one of the main anchors of their organization for the next six-plus years. He was the guy. I mean, he might not necessarily project as the best player, uh, although he projects as a very good player, but when you put everything together with him, he's the first one that they determine, you know, this guy, he's going to be a Mariner. We'd like this guy to kind of set the example. And one of the neat things about it, when he did uh, get that offer, and I spoke with his agent about it, and his agent talked about hearing from Jerry DePoto and, and you know, picking up the phone and calling Evan and saying, this is good. <laughs> 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 and, and how the deal came together is that when he finalized that deal, he got on a FaceTime chat with a bunch of other young Mariners, Kyle Lewis and a bunch of other guys, and they all cheered him on. I mean, this is a group that's come up together, and to see the first one get such a deal, to know there's the possibility that there will, there will be some others, to see Jerry DePoto say, this is our guy, and to also say, you know, it's not just about locking up the player, but it's also showing the fans, hey, we're committed to sure. this guy. It's been hard over the last few years to grab onto guys as they've kind of been channeling through different guys and trying to get different looks, and they want something that's going to be more permanent, and here you go. This guy's here six years minimum. Well, especially at that position for this organization, right? I mean, when you look at the laundry list of first basemen, now you have a guy who is elite defensively at the position and a guy that they really believe in the bat of Evan White, and maybe most importantly, given the money that they are now guaranteed to pay him, they believe in the person very much of Evan White. And uh, I think that is probably the most important thing, and everything else kind of falls in line with that. So we'll have a chance to hear from Jerry DePoto talking about that extension near the end of this first hour and at the beginning of the second hour. So a lot to get to here on this edition of the Hot Stove Show. Happy to have you with us. When we come back, we'll hear from uh, Mariners catcher Austin Nola, who joins us from the Mariners Care Community Tour. Austin joins us next on the Alaska Airlines Mariners Radio Network. All things Mariners, all off-season. The Hot Stove on 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle Sports app. 
Hot Stove rolls along. Glad you're with us. Aaron Goldsmith, Shannon Dreher, Gary Hill, and Mariners Hall of Famer Dan Wilson as we take you to the bus of the Mariners Care Community Tour. And we welcome uh, one of our favorite guys that we had a chance to get to know last year. That is uh, now Mariners catcher Austin Nola. Uh, Austin, first of all, thank you for taking some time out of the tour to join us on the phone. Are you feeling like this is uh, back in the minor league days for you, getting back on the charter bus and, and tearing oh, up the pavement yeah, a little thank bit? Thank you for having me, yeah. But- it's kind of a nice charter bus, though, so I, I can't say this is like the minor leagues. I mean, everything is top of the line here. I mean, the Mariners care caravan is phenomenal. They've, the staff has done an excellent job in putting this together. You know, Austin, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That actually does remind me, since, you know, your story is so incredible. Uh, this last year, you were a, a 29-year-old rookie. Uh, you spent so much time in the minor leagues. I, I, I can remember when I first rode on my first uh, bus from the airport to the hotel with the Mariners. Like, those buses, Austin, were nicer than the buses in the minor leagues driving for, like, 10 hours through the middle of the night. What was last year like for you just making uh, that transition to essentially an everyday big league guy and and everything that goes along with it that uh, people at home don't even think about, but, of course, that you live every single day? Yeah, it's different. I really had to rely on the leadership of the team and guys, you know, the older guys and learning and, you know what you know how to go about business and because it is different it's much different than the minor leagues uh, it's just a different dynamic and uh, a lot more eyes on you so uh, that it was uh, interesting to learn you know I really leaned on my brother too he's been you know he's been in the big leagues for close to five years so he was able to help me out with some tips but um, it, it's just been a, a great journey and a, a great ride so you know I really appreciate the opportunity. Austin, it sounds like we're going to see quite a bit of you behind the plate this year what do you do to get ready for that in the off season? Oh, we just, uh, just try to keep my body right, um, stay focused, and um, flexibility, mobility, and uh, you know, just doing your doing your work every day. I think that's the biggest thing is preparation at this time of year. You know, because you can't really prepare for the games this time of year, but you can really focus on the the aspects of the part that will keep you, you know, on the field as much as possible. So that's what I'm focused on is um, just trying to stay healthy. We had a, a chat last year, I think it was in Oakland, uh, in the dugout, and it's apparent you can play so many different positions, but in talking to you, uh, you talked about catching in a different sort of way. It seems like that's where your mentality's been for a while. Yeah, it's really what gave me the, you know, in the uh, when I first transitioned to catcher, it really gave me the uh, the new drive from playing infield. I was uh, kind of burnt out. And then once I switched over to catcher and was able to learn a little, learn a lot more, and it kind of gave me a new fire to to continue to play. And uh, I think that's kind of where I have the love for the position because it entails so much. And you know, there's always something to do, some type of preparation, and uh, in order to be ready for the game. He's a catcher through and through, Shannon. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, it's the, it's the position, it's the best spot on the field, Aaron. Don't you believe that to be true? I have. You've convinced me. Absolutely. Aaron, Dan Wilson, good talking to you. Um, you know, we, we've been having some, some weekly meetings here with, with all the catchers, really, in the, in the organization and, and uh, game-calling university, we call it. But we, we talk about a lot of different uh, topics and, and uh, all of it related to, to the job behind the plate, which you do very, very well. And, and uh, you know, some of the intangibles you do very, very well, which, which makes you uh, so desirable to have around. But can you, can you just talk to a little bit about GCU and the impact it's had on, on, on you and then some of the guys. And, and uh, I know for me, having your leadership on the call has been tremendous. 
but but what do you what are you getting out of it? What do you think some of these younger catchers are getting out of of, of the work that we're doing? Yeah, I appreciate the compliments, Dan. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I I was on it last year, and I absolutely fell in love with it last year because our goal last year was to be able to have something, you know, to keep our minds in the game, you know, because over the long offseason, you kind of forget that you play baseball. You get so focused on your routine as far as working out and training that you forget that there is a very important side of the game, the catching side, but it entails a lot of stuff. So the GCU helps to keep our, our minds in the game, you know, always thinking a little bit, you know, taking that time, that training time now to train our brains for for the game and I think that's been a big deal for me it's like coming into spring training now I feel I'm ready to go as far as my mind in the game going over the little things that you know really make the difference behind the plate Dan if, if you would can you tell us if there, there are people listening who don't know about game calling university GCU as you were just referencing uh, Austin was a part of it last year a part of it again this year over the phone this is where you are taking catchers within the organization from levels from the ground all the way up to the big leagues and, and talking catching, right? Yeah, we're talking catching, and, and, and a lot of we, we're focusing on a lot of different areas. The, the first four weeks this particular season, uh, we talked about leadership, and, and the position lends itself to leadership and what that looks like and, and how you can uh, show leadership uh, primarily with the pitching staff but with all your teammates. And, and now we're getting into a little bit more of the technical uh, area we're talking about pitches and and uh, what you, you know some of the uh, uh, metrics that are out there and some of the new uh, research that has gone into to pitching and and pitch uh, movement. Uh, so we're looking at all different aspects and and uh, I think it's for me it's been great because I get to know a lot about uh, some of the new things that have come out. Uh, but I think with these young guys, it, it's a good opportunity. Uh, to hear from an Austin Nola about what it's like to be behind there uh, in a big league game or, or to hear from Murphy about what it's like to come to a new ball club in the middle of a season and have to catch and, and learn a new pitching staff. I mean, th- these are these are great conversations, and, and uh, these guys, I think, are all uh, growing from it, and, and hopefully we can continue to, to, to bring good stuff to it. Obviously, terrific instruction is where this is coming from, Dan. Well, I don't know about that. I, I, some guys might hang up during the call. I don't know. But, <laughs> but uh, it, it's been good to do it, and I think you know Tony Arnrich deserves all the credit. He's really puts a lot of energy into it and, and does such a great job with the catchers. And, uh, you know, I tell you what, it, it, like, like, like Austin said, you know, it, they come into spring training in, in a different mindset, and, and that's, a, that's a win in half the battle right there. Austin, how much time did you spend catching in the Dominican, and how was that experience in Winter League this year? Oh, it was an excellent experience for, you know, just going over to over there to see the culture and learn about what they go through. Um, I had a, the guy that helped me catch Paul Phillips told me, he said, you got to do it once. You got to just go over there and see what they go through when they come into a locker room in the, uh, in the States. I mean, usually they come in, they're by themselves. They don't know the language. There may be three or four uh, of them and that lonely feeling you got to go feel that and to, just to have a respect for their culture and and that's and that's really what i felt i felt that feeling like oh man i really need to go out and practice interacting with these guys it's it's more important than i ever thought so that was a huge thing you know the experience you get to see what they go through and how they came up i mean it's really a respectable thing i mean you, you realize start to realize how why these players are so good i mean 
what they go through, how much they practice, prepare. I mean, they're playing right now. I mean, they're in games right now, so <laughs> it never ends for those guys. I mean, they, nobody knows the game better than these these men. Austin Nola is our guest here on the Hot Stove Show. He's currently uh, taking part of the Mariners Care Community Tour. They're making their way from Yakima to Wenatchee and then on to uh, Marco Gonzalez territory in Spokane. Yeah, Austin, I think that for a lot of people who were watching the Mariners last year, they could have easily missed the fact, Austin, that you caught some games, right? Because you only caught a handful of games. And a lot of your catching experience had come in near the end of your minor league career. And then Omar Narvaez gets traded to the Brewers. And now all of a sudden, it's this Mariners headline. It's Tom Murphy and it's Austin Nola. And for a lot of folks, they're probably scratching their heads going, well, wait, where did this come from? Can you tell us a little bit about what your conversations with Scott Service and maybe other members of the coaching staff were like near the end of the season? Because obviously you made plans to go to the Dominican to catch in winter ball and to make catching more of a priority for you come 2020. So how did all of this kind of line up for you where you knew uh, in the last, I'm guessing, a couple of weeks at least of the season that this is what 2020 would look like for you? Oh, I, I, no, I didn't know about, we didn't talk about any of that stuff. We were still focused on, you know, doing our jobs in uh, September. I think, I think that was a, a big thing is just staying focused on my, my job was uh, as a utility player. I mean, that's what, uh, coming in, that's what I expected. And, uh, I stayed focused on that, but I knew after the season, I just wanted to, you know, stay fresh catching, uh, because I, I really feel that's an important trait to be able to have, especially since I didn't catch a whole whole lot of games this year i think over the entire year i'd only caught 35 or 40 games you know including triple a and the big league so um, i just wanted to keep that skill fresh because in case something like this did happen i always want to stay prepared so that was i'm I'm really glad i went to dominican to go learn and stay fresh so um i didn't know this was going to happen but i'm glad i I glad glad i stayed prepared and uh went to got, got my work in over there in dominican so it all worked out so, Austin, you spent the majority of your offseason in New Orleans, or I'm sorry, in Louisiana? Yes, ma'am, Baton Rouge. Okay, so you've got Baton Rouge, you've got the Dominican Republic, and over the last two days you've had Wenatchee and Yakima, and now you're heading to Spokane. That's quite quite the trip. Have you ever spent any time in that part of Washington before? No, ma'am, I have not. It's uh, it's very interesting. Uh, it's uh, much different. It looks like a completely different state. <laughs> um, we go from rain and driving over the pass to snow now to a dry to a dry land so uh it's very different but i, I kind of like it the people in wenatchee were extremely hospitable and uh really enjoyed over there you didn't watch any lsu football did you while you're in the dominican did you figure out a way to watch joe burrow and company when that was going on <laughs> i did i was in the lot we played every every saturday night we had a game you know at the exact you know we yeah, I think every Saturday night we had a game, so I was watching. I was pulling up on my phone watching, and all these guys were like, what are you watching? <laughs> they had no clue of football, college football, what's going on. So, um, yeah, I was able to watch it, but I didn't know anything about Joe Burrow at the time. I was just watching it. I didn't even get to watch much. The first game I came back and watched the full game was Joe against uh, Alabama, and that's when I realized, like, wow, we have a Heisman Trophy candidate on our hands right now. <laughs> Phenomenal season. Hey, you know, you did mention earlier your brother Aaron who, of course, is a stud in the rotation for the Phillies. You know, this is um, this holiday table, uh, you had a chance to talk about how you're the guy in the family with a big league home run. I mean, this, I'm mean, i guessing that uh, Thanksgiving dinner was a little bit different this year in the NOLA household because of that. 
he's definitely quieted down a little bit because <laughs> uh, I, I, for three or four years, you know, he, when he got up to the big leagues, he got his first hit. He was able to come home every year and just anytime we were in an argument, he would just say, well, I got more hits than you in the big leagues. I'm like, oh, my gosh, when am I going to ever live this down? He just and uh, so finally I was telling I told everybody the big one of the biggest hits in the big leagues for me was my 11th hit because Aaron only had 10 hits in his big league. <laughs> so getting that 11th hit, I was able to breathe a little bit now and say like, hey, I got more hits than you. But he still he still he still uh, calls me a rookie all the time, which makes me want to punch him in the face. But, uh, <laughs> and he probably hasn't asked you to, to throw a bullpen at all, has he? No, because they didn't want me to see his pitches because they were playing this year. <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Good point. Uh, no, I catch, I, he, he, I catch his flat grounds. He'll go out there and throw, so I'll go catch his flat grounds. He'll throw a pin at the end of the, end of January, so I'll probably catch one pin from him before he heads uh, to spring training. So, uh, But I, he's always he's so easy to catch. I mean, you just put your glove down, he throws it to the glove. Speaking of spring training, how do you think this spring will be different for you compared to springs in the past? Um, you know, I've never really come into, let's see, I've been, I've never really come into camp as, you know, being going to catch a lot of games. I've always come into camp as just being, you know, utility, like you said, and just kind of working around in different positions. So it'll be interesting to catch more games. I haven't caught a ton of uh, games in spring training, so. Um, I'm looking forward to you know getting back there and you know meeting our st- meeting our pitching staff and seeing who we got and uh, just learning the pitchers and uh, building relationships with with them and you know learning communication that it's going to take in, uh, in order to get on the same page with them. Austin, it's great checking in with you a little bit. Obviously, it's been a, a very busy and eventful off season for you. But speaking of spring training, we can't wait to see you down there in sunny Peoria. Not all that long from now. Uh, we appreciate you chipping in on the Mariners Care Community Tour. I know you're doing good work there, and uh, look forward to seeing you not too far from now. All right, thank you, thank you guys very much for having me. There is Austin Nola. You know, Gary, I, I think, it, and your last question brings up Dana a really interesting point. It could be easy to think. For a guy like Austin, although he's he's not wired this way, but just speaking in generics, that okay, you've got a your first big league season under your belt, right? You can come into camp. You are kind of one of the guys that are that is back from last year who really contributed, right? And now you might feel a little easier in spring training compared to when you're the guy who's never played in the big leagues before. But now he's working on not a brand new position, but a brand new position from an everyday standpoint. So this will be. A much different spring training for him. Yeah, and I would say that that first scenario you laid out might be true of of most guys. Austin Nola is not like that at all. He would never treat uh, a spring training like he would coast in there. He he's the he's the consummate professional, um, always preparing, always going, you know, above and beyond to to prepare uh, for what you know for his major league career. And and I tell you, I, he's just a pleasure to work with on a, on a daily basis and see. You know he's got a lot of fans that were really excited for him uh, within the organization when he got called up. So, uh, yeah, but it, it will pose a little bit of a, a challenge for him, and and uh, getting those everyday reps is going to be good for him. And I think uh, he and Murph are going to make a great tandem. Organization certainly believes so, and you can understand why. Well, the Mariners are changing the game with our all new Flex membership. Go to the games you want, sit in the seats you want, and get the savings you want all when you want. For more information on how to choose your membership and enjoy discounted seats all season long, simply visit mariners.com slash flex.
Good to hear from Mariners catcher Austin Nola. When we return here in hour number one of the Hot Stove Show, we will check in with Brian DeLunis, Mariners bullpen coach, for a couple of segments. Good pitching conversation straight ahead on the Alaska Airlines Mariners Radio Network. Back to more of the Hot Stove on 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle Sports app. Welcome back inside the Hot Stove Show. Aaron Goldsmith, Dan Wilson, Shannon Dreher, Gary Hill. As we're joined on the phone now by uh, one of our favorite guys to talk pitching with. Uh, he's a fantastic follow on Twitter as well. Mariners bullpen coach Brian DeLunis. Uh, Brian, thank you for joining the show. How is the off season for you, if you can even call it that in your line of work? Yeah, good, good. Thanks, guys, for having me. Um, off season's good. We're just starting right now to, to kind of see some of the some of the guys' first bullpens coming in, some of their videos. Uh, Pete's been sharing those with me or, you know, vice versa. So it's interesting to to get to look. We don't gain a whole lot of knowledge, especially the people that we know. Uh, but it is fun to see those. So it's all good. How about you guys? Everything good? Oh, no, you're not supposed to ask us questions, Brian. This is, <laughs> this is, a, this is a one-way street. Get control yeah. of the center. Yeah. No, yeah, nobody cares about our offseason. Come on, Brian. You know the drill by now. Jeez. I know. Uh, we're all doing very well. I'll, I'll speak for the the collective group, uh, Dan in particular. Sure. Uh, you know, when you look at your time in the Mariners organization, uh, Brian, you were the the bullpen coach who came out of nowhere from the private sector in St. Louis, uh, and then you went to the essentially the front office. You were the director of, of pitching development and strategies, and now you are returning to your original role as uh, the bullpen coach, which I have to imagine is not kind of the same as other bullpen coaches. But tell us a little bit what led to uh, the move to you kind of being more part of being in uniform on a regular basis. Yeah, well, I, I think it was, uh, you know, one of those things where, you know, Jerry and I talked quite a bit about getting back on the field and, and where I felt more comfortable. Um, you know, when you wake up every day for, for 15 years and, and you go and work with pitchers, and, and whether that's at, you know, at the college level or uh, the private sector, but that's what you do, you know, and that's what I do. And, and, and you wake up and you work with pitchers and, you know, so, so while I think the idea was a really good idea, um, it, it just got uncomfortable for me at times because, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're not doing what you have been doing. And, you know, I think the, the, the director of pitching role was, um, you know, more of a scenario where you're kind of coaching the coaches, if you will, and, you know, trying to get everybody on the same page and, and, and creating some systems and, and um, and making sure that the overall you know pitching group uh, is functioning very well from from the DSL all the way to the major leagues. But um, but the one thing that I really missed out on, like I said, was was just the ability to kind of get hands on and work with guys and and to and to work with the pitchers. So I think that's really you know the main thing. Obviously, there there became an opening, and um, you know we had talked about it, and and you know I, I thankfully I was able to get back on the field and, and go that route. I just think that. I think I make more of an impact in that role. Um, I feel this way anyway, you know, more comfortable in that role of, of being to support the pitching coach and, and, then, and then being able to coach those, those relievers up at the same time. Brian, can you speak to, you know, this is Dan Wilson, and, and I think one of the things that we've seen in the game that's a little bit different, uh, I would say, within the last two or three years, is this, this idea of a bullpen coach and a pitching coach. And, um, I mean, there have always been bullpen coaches, but – it, it seems like the the bullpen coach role has changed quite a bit. How is it? Can you can you speak a little bit to, you know, the race, the relationship between pitching coach, bullpen coach, and, and how that looks 
uh, for the Mariners going ahead this season. Yeah. Hey, Dan, good to hear from you. And yeah, I think that, uh, the, the, you know, the old thing, even when I interviewed initially in, in 18 or, you know, the fall of 17, you know, one of the things that I, I had talked to, to Jerry and, and the guys about then was that, you know, I wasn't real interested in coming in and, and kind of flipping balls and, uh, you know, to relievers and kind of slapping them on the backside and, and doing the old traditional bullpen coach and, you know, being a likable guy and whatever the case was. And, um, you know, I just, if I was coming in, I wanted to have a little bit more impact than that. And so I think for us, yeah, you certainly have the pitching coach, you know, role. You have the, the, the bullpen pitching coach. Um, you know, Jim at one point kind of fit in as that assistant pitching coach, if you will. Um, you know, last year, even in my role, I think that it's really one of those things that each guy kind of brings, you know, certain, certain aspects to the, to the game or, you know, to the table and, um, and, you know, and then you fit them in where you can. So, um, for me this year, especially as a, as a bullpen coach and, and even in 18, you know, you're, 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 you're needing guys now that, that, you know, have a little bit more experience in terms of the, the analytics, being able to communicate with the pitchers. Um, you know, the data side of things, um, being able to, you know, being able to work the, the, the data side of things, tech side of things in terms of, you know, rep soto, um, camera work, those kind of, we have a lot of support as well, but it's just, you have to be, you know, to me, I really look at this year as, as trying to support PD as, as much as I can. And, and just my goal is to make him the best pitching coach he could possibly be. And, um, and, and, you know, being able to do that through, you know, whatever certain, you know, aspects that I bring to the table that maybe Pete doesn't, and Pete brings a lot to the table that, that I don't. So, um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's a, it's kind of an evolved role where it's not just, you know, somebody out there to, to, to flip balls to guys and, and answer the phone. It's a little bit more involved than that at, at this point. Ryan, watching what's happened on the pitching side the last five years in, in particular has just been so fascinating and how much more we know about it and how much more we know with the data and the biomechanics and everything else. How did you get interested in that side of the game? Well, you know, again, for me personally, I think the biggest challenge was because I, I knew that if I was going to, I think any of us are competitors and, and we want to, you know, we want to succeed in whatever it is that we do. And that was really the first thing. And and then from that, I kind of knew that, you know, in the market that I was in, you, you had some guys who were, you know, had big league playing time. And, and certainly that's hard to compete against in a, in a, you know, in a private sector market like that, because a lot of times, you know, and it's not right or wrong, but you just, you know, um, you'll have parents that will, if, if you say, okay, well, this guy played in the big leagues for five years or for 10 years, and this guy played, you know, at a small college, it's hard to convince them that your knowledge base is, you know, is, is where it is. And it's some, and sometimes it could be higher there. You could bring something else to the table. So that's what really just, just knowing that I had to, you know, I had to, I'm going to have to work, you know, 10 times harder um, in, in the private sector like that to, to, to gain, you know, a, a niche or, or, you know, some kind of competitive edge is really when I got started. And then it just kind of took off from there. So it got into the, you know, like I said, the biomechanics and, and, and getting some, you know, kinetic chain information and some, some biomechanical uh, information back on guys and then integrating that into the training process. And, um, you know, and then as, as we kind of went along, it's been interesting because technology is just kind of integrated into the game. Um, so, you know, back in, in 2009, 2010, we didn't really, you know, utilize TrackMan Info. We didn't have, you know, RepSoto. We we were just starting to get, you know, some high-speed cameras that the, the camera info wasn't great, but but it helped a little bit. And then, 
you know, as we got better and better, you're, you're still talking about the last five or six years. So as we got better camera, we started to see how the ball truly comes off the fingers, what actually happens. We always had a sense of what happens. But, but I think even a lot of pitchers started to realize that, you know, maybe what they thought was happening or what they thought was going on with the arm or with the hand um, isn't necessarily what we're seeing on, on high-speed video. So, um, you know, I, I think that was just really it is, is, is having the wherewithal to kind of, you know, grow with the technology and find out what's useful and, and what's not. And, and, you know, still never get away from the, the, the coaching ability, you know, kind of kind of integrating those two things together. Your description of all of that, I mean, it seems like it's happened so quickly. How much are things changing just from year to year at this point in terms of pitching? Yeah, it, it really has. I mean, it's it's been, a, a compl- I would say, a complete 180 in the last five years. Um, you know, we, we had some biomechanical data and stuff that, that we were doing before that. We, we Certainly, there some high-speed video goes back all the way to, you know, the Dodgers uh, spring training in like the 60s, but but nobody really used it, and, and not to that point. And, you know, every year it, it just, yeah, I mean, it changes more and more. Rep Soto just came out with, uh, uh, the, so I'll give you a quick example. One thing that we used last year, we had people down in Peoria working on trying to combine uh, edutronic high-speed video of the ball coming out of the hand and then being able to put, um, you know, like TrackMan data on that on that screen or on that shot and then being able to save that clip and send it to, whether it was an affiliate coach or, or you know, somebody in, in HP or, you know, myself or whoever needed his max or whoever needed to see it. But it just became this long process. And, you know, the, the guys that we had were great at making it happen. And now four months later, Rapsodo came out with exactly the same product where they, they you know, they combine the, the video and the information, the data on the same, on the same video shot. So not only do you get to see the arm, traditionally how we would do it but you'd also get to see the data next to it um so guys can kind of use what they want but the, the technology cha- on a daily basis really you know on a weekly basis it, it changes and um you know again i think i think the the biggest challenge is to to know what is what is helpful and um and to know what, what we need to probably avoid or you know give it a little bit of time or maybe let some of the again i think that's why in the private sector we don't have the you, we didn't have the restrictions kind of like you do in professional baseball at times because these are these are guys' real careers, right? I mean, like on a day-to-day basis, this is what they do, and they want to get better and they want to improve, but they don't want to guess. And, um, you know, in, in the private sector, we have that ability sometimes to – you might have a guy who's down and out, and his only shot is to take a chance at something. So uh, we would we would continuously be able to, to you know, explore and, and dig around and see what works and what doesn't work. And I think that's why you're seeing so many of those type of guys, myself included, that, that have gotten hired into the professional game, you know, whatever level they're at. Yeah, and I would say too, Brian, that it's a great point because, uh, you know, as, as a catcher and, and, and being back there and working with a lot of different types of pitchers, you, you just never know what is, you, you know, you never know what might stick with a guy and what might not stick with a guy. And so, you can look at it, you know, a, a lot of different ways, and it may help one guy tremendously. It might not help another guy, but uh, having the the technology, having different ways of looking at things, really does make a big difference. Uh, you know, if not for the whole staff, but but it, it might might help one or two guys, and that's important. Yeah, and, and no doubt, and you know, and the thing is, and so I'll give you a quick little backstory. When I went down in, in I think it was July, to um, to talk to Pete, you know, Woodworth and. And, 
watch him and just watch him work with guys and kind of get a feel. And, um, you know, we talked at the end of the weekend and, and, and I said, man, you know, outstanding work. And, and, uh, I said, you know, your, your future is going to be here, you know, sooner than you know it type of thing. And, and he said, yeah, he goes, you know, I appreciate it. You know, I, I know I need to really, you know, get on top of the rep soto and get on top of the technology and, and learn how to integrate, you know, the trackman info a little bit better. And my advice to him was, I said, yeah, but, but don't ever let that get in the way of your coaching, you know? And, and I thought that was really important for him to understand that, that let's not confuse coaching as, you know, we have to be technology proficient. We have to integ- integrate this stuff. That kind of stuff sometimes could be for us, you know, behind closed doors. Uh, I think you hit the, 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 the nail on the head, Dan, and that, you know, part of coaching is knowing who to go, you know, who to go to with, with, with data and, and who to stay away from with, with data. And, um, you know, you, you have a guy like Mike Leak. He's not going to want to hear that. He's, you know, it's, it's the last thing he wants to do. So you got to find a different way to coach a guy like that. And, you know, certainly there's some, there's some guys who um, are not very, you know, data inclusive. And then you have some other guys who, who you know, uh, Austin Adams, a guy who would, would want all of the data, you know, on a daily basis, every, every day, come back and, Hey, well, tell me my numbers, you know, where am I at? So it just depends on the guy. But again, it, at the end of the day, you still have to be able to coach, build relationships, communicate with your pitchers, uh, and, and let them know that, that again, at the end of the day, you've got their back and you'll do anything for them. We will continue this conversation with Brian Alunas, Mariners bullpen coach. Brian, we appreciate you sticking with us for another segment. We'll step aside and be back with more of Brian Alunas after this timeout. All things Mariners, all off-season. The Hot Stove on 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle Sports app. Well, we continue here on the Hot Stove Show. Aaron Goldsmith alongside Dan Wilson, Shannon Dreyer, and Gary Hill. We continue with our second segment with Mariners bullpen coach Brian Delonis. And, you know, Brian, I'd have to think for a man in your position – and not only with what you do for the ball club, but the manner in which you do it, like we were just talking about with uh, such an emphasis on technology. So many of the pitching prospects the Mariners have are kind of like a like a Rapsodo dream, right? like a Trackman dream. Um, one of those guys that we all want to hear you talk about and tell us about is Logan Gilbert, who had such a remarkable first season as a professional last year and finished in double-A. Can you tell us, uh, so many of us have never seen him pitch. Uh, can you tell us just what he has been like to work with and what you think the future holds for Logan Gilbert? Yeah, and, and, and I will confess that, you know, I haven't worked with him a ton as much as uh, I didn't have a chance last year to get out all that much and and travel, and that was kind of part of that as well. But, um, but being able to t- kind of see from a distance and then obviously communicate with Max and, and Andy and the rest of the crew on Logan – and I, I think I think a lot of it is kind of the demeanor and how he is on the mound. But you know, he's really when you talk about the track man and the rep soto and, and and what he brings to the table. I mean, the extension is really special, um, and and that's just something that you know, the later you release the ball and, and you know, getting the ball out of hand and, and getting it to be very similar looking and 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 some of those things. And you know, the other thing too is that Logan is not afraid of of getting his hands dirty with the data. Um, you know, he's done a really good job of, of looking at, you know, what the data says, what target, like what target shape he's trying to get to, what, you know, what's the movement pattern he's trying to get. And, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing because our, our analysts, you know, now um, have so much info 
that, you know, if he releases the ball here with this, with, with you know, with these characteristics, this height, this, this side, um, you know, this type of vertical break, we kind of have an idea of like what should happen at the major league level, right? I mean, like every, every guy is a little bit different in the ball, but if we know basically, you know, off the track man data, what the ball is going to do, what it's going to look like, the speed, the, the, the angle of approach to the plate, all those, all those, that data goes into play. We kind of have a little, a little bit of an idea of, of what expected results should be. And so that really changes things at the minor league. I think at the minor league level, it used to be a little bit of visual and maybe the, the coordinator would come by and give you some ideas in terms of what we think that we want this guy to do. But like nowadays we have a very good understanding of exactly what we want these guys to do. And, um, and you, it, it eliminates a little bit of the guesswork. It's not an exact science, but it really does eliminate a lot of the guesswork to the point where we can make a suggestion to one of our minor league pitchers like Logan that, you know, hey, if you can get your slider to this type of horizontal break, we expect this kind of result at the major league level. Uh, and I think that's something that a lot of the fans don't necessarily see or, or hear that often or, or kind of understand why we're making some of the adjustments. But when you look at the, the pitching um, and the, the improvements that the pitchers made throughout the year last year at the minor league level, again, that's a really big part of it is, is that we're no longer guessing, so to speak. We, we, we have the ability to to really show these guys exactly what the movement profile, what, what the, the vertical break and what the you know horizontal break is and, and you know where we need the release light to be. And, and you know, we've got all that information to be able to give to those guys to, 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 you know, to, to get a better understanding of where we think they'll be at the major league level. I think Jerry DePoto's talked about it. A big league pitch is a big league pitch no matter what field you throw it on and you can break it down as such yeah. and know what it is and and that i think that you know is something that you're starting to see more and you you look at all the systems that were put in place last year and throughout the the minors and what you were talking about in coaching the coaches it, it sounds like everybody is on the same page talking the same language they understand the technologies and, and kind of pulling together as one as far as pitchers in the organization what does that give you as an organization moving forward? You, you know, Shannon, we, I, had, I talked to Max today for about an hour, and, um, and it was one of the things that we really hit on in our conversation was how excited we all are, uh, you know, A to Z, um, to get to spring and to get to working together. And, and, and even just, you know, Max even mentioned, you know, having some, you know, get out into the desert a little bit and have a you know campfire out there and maybe a couple beers and, and just talk baseball because we're all we're all under the same umbrella. We we we, we kind of look at the major league uh, level as a as a just another affiliate. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of places I think they kind of have their major league guys doing one thing and they do whatever they want, and and then you kind of have you know PD doing something different. And you know, just from Pete and myself and and Max and you know, Rob and alone and, and McGrath is now on board, board Sean and, and all these guys. It's just awesome that, that we all speak the same language. You know, last year there was a little bit of a learning curve. We had a lot of people in new positions. Um, you know, obviously Max was new. I was new into my position. And, you know, some of the other guys were, were new on board. So this year we don't really have that. We didn't have a whole lot of turnover. Other, you know, obviously the major league level a little bit, but at the minor league level we didn't have a ton of turnover. And so I think we're all excited to just, you know, get back down and start working with each other. And it gives us a huge advantage. Um, you know, there's a lot of pride right now in, in being part of the Mariners pitching development, you know, and, and part of the Mariners, uh, whether it's player development or, or um, you know, HP, whatever, whatever part you're in, 
I think everybody's egos have been checked at the door and we're all just ready to help our guys become the best that, that they can be. And, and I think a little bit of that too, Shannon, comes from the, 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 you know, the, the rebuild, if you, if you will, um, you know, for last year and, and even this year a little bit, we, we kind of know that like our goal is to just get our guys as good as they can be. And, um, you know, we might not necessarily be locked in on a, on a, on a world series championship this year. We see it in the, in the next year or so, but, um, but yeah, we, we, you know, I think that kind of helps where it's just, it, everybody's on the same page. Everybody speaks the same language. Everybody knows that this guy might be incredible pitch designer, but he might lack in the mobility, you know, movement prep department. But then we have somebody else who really is, is, you know, has a background in biomechanics or, or you know, movement prep. And we just, we just share that information freely and openly. And, and, um, you know, there's, there's no stopping a, a call from, you know, our, our low A pitching coach to, to the major league level, just to, Hey, well, you know, I'm working on this. What do you guys think? So it really does. It, it, we are really excited this year to, to, to just to get everybody working together and, and, and sharing information. And uh, it's just a different group. It's, it's, it's the best group I've been around in terms of the, the knowledge base that these guys have and not just the knowledge base, but the care level and, and the compete level and the, and the, the ability to coach is, is really impressive. Well, I can definitely attest to that too, Brian, and just, uh, you know, getting everybody on the same page and moving the ship in the same direction. And you're right, it is, it's exhilarating in a way that, that we're all, you know, getting in, in, into the same uh, terminology. We're, we're using the same words and, and makes things and explanations go a lot more quickly. And, you know, you, you talk a lot about the technology and, and this is a conversation that, has really kind of just started, and, and I think for the catcher position uh, becomes extremely important. Um, but I'm curious your thoughts as as you look at, you know, the, the talk of the, the automated umpire and, and strike zone. Uh, from a pitching standpoint, what what does that say to you? Does that change anything that you guys are doing, or, or how do you guys look at that? I know from a catching standpoint, very, very different. Changes us completely. But what yeah. does it do for pitchers? Well, listen, I, I think for me personally, it, it, it's a little bit of a hard pill to swallow just because I really, you know, I, I sent, um, I sent, uh, Tony Arnich a, a text today about a, uh, there was a, a tweet and it was just a drill where they were, they were bouncing the ball to the catcher where he was kind of working on, you know, bringing the ball from, from down to up. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're just, we're going to miss a lot of that. It's so fun to watch the, the, the nuances of really good receiving catchers and, you know, as a pitcher myself, you, you really appreciate, obviously, the better ones who work hard back there to get strikes and, and work hard on their receiving skills. And then, you know, just the, the job that you guys do in terms of, of helping those guys and talking, you guys have the, you know, the game calling academy and, 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 you know, those types of things where it just it changes that a little bit to the point now where it's, it's I, think, I think to get down and dirty, I think, yeah, I think we're going to try to expose the, the top of the zone a little bit more um, specifically with probably some, some off speed pitches um, because, you know, typically we just haven't thrown them there because even if it is a strike, it's not a, you know, it's never a cold strike. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see some of the types of pitches um, that are getting called at the top of the zone. And then at the bottom of the zone, because we've all seen it where, you know, the kid, the catcher and he, he, you know, he gets his arm kind of pulled out of the zone and down into the ground. And we're going to see those being called strikes because they're they're nasty, nasty sliders that, you know, have that late downward bite on it, whatever the case is. So I think we are obviously going to start to dig in, and, and we already have a little bit in terms of the, the looking at the data 
to see who's latest, you know, who's got the late movement, who's got the late down movement, um, you know, ride in, in terms of ride at the top of the zone. But specifically, I think it's going to be more of the, the pitches that look off to on that you can sneak in. And at the bottom of the zone, the pitches that are on to off. And and I think you're going to be able to see some, some guys sneak pitches in the spots that, you know, would never have been swung at and would never have been called a strike, but but they end up getting into that zone a little bit. I, I, but I do, Dan, I'm a little bit, you know, just I guess it's where we got to go, um, you know, but I am a little bit disheartened just because it's, it's in, in that aspect, I guess I'm a little old school in terms of, you know, really appreciating what the catchers do back there and that, that part of the game and, and getting some pitches for strikes and, you know, um, it, that, that human element, I guess. Can I get an amen? Thank you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it really is tough. It just, man, and, and especially because of the, you know, if you're a catcher or if you're a pitcher, I, I got to believe you're, you're having a little bit of trouble with the, with the transition to the robot umpires. Hey, Brian, it's always good to talk pitching with you. We appreciate you stopping by. We expect invitations to that party of the desert you were talking about. That sounded like a, like a pretty, yeah, good, absolutely. pretty good time. We'll get that done. We'll be, we'll be, well, you know, we'll be around. We'll be around. You know where to find us. Brian, hey, thanks, man. We'll look forward to seeing you out there in Peoria. Hey, everybody, thanks for having me, and, and it's great. I can't wait to get down there for, uh, for spring training and, and looking forward to it. And one of our favorite guys, Mariners bullpen coach Brian DeLunas. Well, fans, discounted tickets are available for groups of 20 or more at T-Mobile Park. Flexible seating options, private hospitality, and picnic packages are also available to complete your group's day at the ballpark. For more information, visit mariners.com slash groups. We've got hour number two of the Hot Stove Show coming up. We will be talking about the Evan White extension a little bit. We'll hear from Mariners General Manager Jerry Depoto and also... We uh, look back at one of uh, the greats in many ways in franchise history, uh, one of our favorites, uh, yours as well, no doubt, Ron Fairley. All that is straight ahead after this time out. This is the Hot Stove Report. Going, going, goodbye baseball. On 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle app. Hour number two of the Hot Stove Show. Aaron Goldsmith and Shannon Dreher, Dan Wilson and Gary Hill. Some of the big news out of T-Mobile Park during this offseason. The extension of young Evan White, Mariners' uh, top five prospect, one of the top prospects in all of the minors. And uh, this was a move that uh, Jerry has alluded to not being the last in terms of locking up young players within the organization and uh, not too long ago, we had a chance to hear from Jerry Depoto talking all about Evan White and, in some ways, a, a pretty historic extension. This is something we started talking about late summer, you know, both in, in terms of Evan personally and just in general as a, as a thought process in, in attacking roster building and kind of stabilizing our club moving forward. This is something that's not too dissimilar. The, the price points are different but not too dissimilar from what the Cleveland Indians did when I was coming through the system and, and reached the big leagues in the early 90s. And and they did this with a number of young players, guys like Carlos Baerga and Sandy Alomar and Jim Tomey and Charles Nagy, you know, started tying up young players. And and I think it was a, a, a transformational moment in Indians history where after so many years of, of struggle, not reaching postseason, seeing players come and go once they've you know run their tenure and we're on the doorstep of free agency 
And in that early 90s, they just changed the narrative by signing a lot of these young players and making them a part of the fabric of what they were doing. And, and it worked. And, and then they went off and dominated a division for about a decade. And we thought something similar w was possible here. And, you know, we started with Evan because we felt like he was the right person. You know, he's a wonderful human being. He cares about the Mariners. I, uh, he wants to be here. An athletic first baseman who we know can defend, we know can run, we know does all the small things, and we believe in his bat. You know, it's a maybe the thing that is generally lost on the the I guess the third parties is Evan White can hit, and we're starting to see power flourish. But he's always been a hitter, and he's always gotten on base. Couple that with all the other skills, and we felt like it was a really solid place to start building our our future club and adding him to the young players that have already made their way to Seattle, guys like Justice and Justin Dunn and J.P. Crawford, etc. And this next wave, which includes guys like Evan White and Logan Gilbert and Jared Kelnick and Cal Raleigh, we, we feel like this is the where it starts to, to really move forward. And don't be surprised if, this is, if you see something like this again in the not-too-distant future because it's something we are making part of our plan moving forward. He essentially has never played in AAA. He played there on a fill-in basis for just literally a handful of games. But he's really never played above AA. Because of this extension, does this mean that we expect to see him on opening day at first base for the Mariners? Or do you want to get him AAA time? I think probably closer to the former. We're, we're open-minded to what comes. Uh, when we agreed to this deal with Evan, it was with the understanding that we were going to do the right thing. Thing for him developmentally based on what we see in the spring but I can't imagine too many scenarios where Evan would come in and and not justify uh, us putting him out there on opening day as our first baseman and you know it, that's what we hope happens and, and we hope he just takes it and runs with it I, I've I've long been of the mindset that you know the young players when you give young players opportunity in the big leagues Sometimes it takes no time at all. Sometimes it takes 150, 300 plate appearances. Rarely does it take more than a year, a year and a half. And the sooner we can start to, to, to assimilate these young players to the major league competition, the, the better off we are in the long term because we want to get that experience. Uh, and Evan is mature enough. He understands uh, the, the psychology of the game. He's been one of our most attentive players since the day we signed him. And I feel like he has learned the lessons he's needed to learn in the minor leagues. And there'll be challenges, and I'm sure there'll be ups and downs. But we believe in his talent, and we believe in him as a human and believe that ultimately he'll make this look like a great deal for the Mariners. That certainly is the expectation. That is Jared Apoto from the Wheelhouse Podcast, a terrific podcast. Dan, when you hear that from Jerry uh, talking about Evan and the extension, obviously the thing that even the casual Mariners fan who knows about Evan White, they think about his defense, but that's more than just uh, picking balls at first base, the impact that that can have. Yeah, and he, he's a type of guy already that has com been compared, and, and I've been able to see him play uh, and, and would make the same comparison to a guy like John Olerud, who was one of the best really all-time at first base. And I think the thing that's important to understand um, about that is that when you have a first baseman, uh, and we've talked about this on the air quite a bit, but when you have a first baseman that can pick the ball, that, that knows how to handle himself around the base, he makes all the other infielders that much better. He gives them so much more confidence. 
you know, they're not afraid to, 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 you know, test their range and make that throw. They know he's going to corral it some way at, at first base. So I think in some ways it really, you know, it, it's a position on the infield uh, where you can have a big impact on the other players around you. And I think that's something that uh, obviously is probably in the minds of Jerry DePoto when, you, when you're making these kinds of decisions. He is that good. Uh, at first base, and and obviously he can hit too. And he talked about his power. I mean, there there is a lot there. But I think just from a defensive standpoint, he he does bring a lot of value uh, to an infield. And and I I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't say we have to congratulate him. He got married yeah. this off season and shares the same anniversary date as my wife and I. So we're kind of like tied together. It's kind of neat. You must like him a lot. I as told a you, I do. It's it is it is kind of crazy that in the span of like a month he signs this incredible extension and gets married. Yes, it's a yeah, it's a great offseason. I mean, I, mean I, I don't know how you go into any other offseason and top this. <laughs> but it's going to be a disappointment. You know, Tremendous. Congratulations. You know what's funny about that, Shannon? You mentioned the close knit group in the minors. It's when we had our December show. I was texting Evan White, "Hey, do you want to come on the show?" And he's like, "Well, I have my rehearsal dinner at that oh, time, no. so I, I'm not going to be able to." So I was like, "Oh, that's great. You know, we'll, we'll catch up in January." So then I go down, uh, Kyle Lewis was next on the list. Hey, yeah, I'd love to, but I'm going to be at Evan White's rehearsal dinner. And I kept going on the list. I was like, yeah, maybe I'm going to stop trying any of those guys because they were all at Evan White's wedding, which is pretty great. The fact that all these guys texted Gary back. I know, it's amazing. how good of a person you, that they are. Because you never do. No, exactly. There's no need to. We see each other here all the time. <laughs> uh, I, I, I couldn't be more thrilled for Evan. You know, we, we mentioned that this is kind of historic. He's, he's the fourth player in baseball history to sign a major league deal before playing in the majors. And so I, you know, when you look at it from a Mariners timeline standpoint, you know, if you're Jerry and Scott, you are trying to get as many guys in their second or third full year come 2022 uh, to then you have the Logan Gilberts up here, right? You'll have, Guys like J.P. Crawford in there what would be third full year. Evan White, if you can get his clock ticking right away, it seems like he is, uh, barring a, a massive setback, going to be the opening day first baseman for the Mariners, although they don't want to rush him, but he's on the path to start opening day, I think it's fair to say. Uh, this is this is a good sign for the franchise, uh, being as aggressive as they are on a guy that they drafted, they are developing, and they really believe in. Yeah, and he, you know, I, th- I think... He, Jerry did mention it too, and and you know the the text messages of all these guys at the wedding, just kind of verifies it. He's just a great kid. He's yeah. he's got great character, uh, the type of guy that will be a leader uh, in the clubhouse over the course of his career. Um, so you, so you want those kinds of guys elevated, and and I know that's a big part of of the decision that was uh, that was made as well. And and uh, you know it's it's going to be exciting to to watch and and see him develop over the years. But this is a big boost for him. And the leadership is something that it really jumped out at me in those last weeks. Evan was up with that group of players that came up not to play, but to kind of get their feet wet and learn the ropes around the big league clubhouse. When they brought up the award winners, so you had more players from the minor leagues coming up, he was the guy that everybody was kind of drawn to. He was the magnet. He was the one that everybody was checking in with, and he was checking in with everybody else. And you don't see that every day, and it jumped out huge in watching it that day. Yeah, it is a it's a great group, and I think you know when, when you talk, you, there was a lot of talk about the Double A Club this year and how close they were. Uh, you know, you you, it, you can't fake that stuff, and and these guys really do feel a great bond. And and uh, Evan is one of those guys that's right up there at the top, leading uh, the charge with this group of guys, and and uh, that's one of the things they've really worked on and done a great job of down in the minor leagues is 
is developing this, uh, you know, this team mentality, this together mentality. And, and uh, I think uh, to see these guys now begin to get to the big leagues together, uh, it's an exciting time for the Mariners. We've got plenty more to get to on hour number two of the hot stove. Uh, when we come back, we will uh, spend the majority of the show uh, kind of reliving one of our, our great conversations with uh, somebody who means uh, meant and still means so much to the organization, uh, Ron Fairley, who we sadly uh, somewhat recently lost, uh, was just one of the all-time greats. We talk about Ron, and we hear from Ron when he was on the program a couple of years ago. Tremendous baseball story straight ahead coming up after this timeout. Back to more of the Hot Stove on 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle Sports app. Glad you're with us tonight on the Hot Stove Show. Aaron Goldsmith, Dan Wilson, Shannon Dreyer, and Gary Hill. And at the end of October, Shannon, we lost uh, one of the great friends of the franchise, Ron Fairley, who we had a chance to hear, of course, on the air for so many years, had just an incredible playing career and was such a dear man. He really was, and that was just one of the absolute thrills of my early days in this business was getting to work with him. I'd heard him for so long and then getting into the booth and finding out about his personality. And, and Dan, you know this. I mean, you never left a conversation with him without laughing. There was always, he always had a kind of glimmer in his eye, and there was always a punchline at the end of every story, and he was just taking you down the path. But the stories and the names and the times that were involved were just amazing. And it didn't take long just to value him as the person, just warm, generous, real gentleman, but to respect the history that he had in this game. When I really kind of took a step back and thought about it in those days, it was a little bit mind-blowing to be with somebody who had just touched so many different eras of the game and been a part of it. I think we were so lucky to have him. Yeah, absolutely. And I know one of the things I can remember early on when I came to the Mariners was meeting Red and, and uh, you know, he had those good stories of playing in Toronto outside in April, the cold weather and, you know, having just been at the University of Minnesota, I could kind of relate, you know, I'd been in a few of those kind of situations myself, but always had a, a kind word, a great story, but always had a, a nugget of, of, of um, instruction in there. And he was able to deliver it to guys uh, in, in an unassuming way, but uh, was just always wanting to make guys better, and it was just a, a pleasure to have him around. Well, to take you back to a little memory bank of Ron Fairley, we played for you when he was on this very program two years ago. And, of course, you have to start with uh, one of his most famous calls and one of the most famous calls in franchise history. Well, all eyes are on this young man right now as he stands in. Griffey 0 for 2 tonight. And the first pitch from back is Lago. There it goes! See you later! Upper deck! Griffey has tied the major league record! Holy cow, the kid has done it! Home runs in eight consecutive games! We've, we've actually asked that Curtis just play that in loop for the entire <laughs> segment. Uh, Aaron Goldsmith, Dan Wilson, and Gary Hill Jr., kind enough to be joined by. Uh, the man who made one of the uh, the great calls in franchise history, Ron Fairley. Uh, Ron, we we are so eager to talk to you about so many different things, but since we just heard that, I I have to ask what what goes through your mind when you hear that highlight once again. Well, that was pretty exciting. <laughs> I mean, uh, good golly! I mean, and there wasn't any doubt about the ball leaving the yard. I mean, when Junior hit it, I mean, it could have been four hundred feet away and it would have cleared it easily, but. Uh, yeah, that was that was pretty. I mean, hitting home runs in eight consecutive games, and uh, the thing I do remember that then Junior came up again. I made Dave Niehaus have the call because 
I think if Junior would have hit it in nine consecutive games, I think it should have been uh, Dave Niehaus's call for it. So are you saying that you actually, like it was your scheduled inning and during the commercial, yes. you said. Yeah, when Junior when Junior came up the following game to hit home runs and set the record, I made Dave Niehaus uh, call his at bat. He wasn't going to do it, but I said, well, there's going to be a lot of dead air. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't Junior come remarkably close to going in nine straight games? Well, well, yeah, he did. Uh, obviously, he didn't do it. Right. But uh, to hit a home runs in, in that many consecutive games, it's, uh, it's quite remarkable. I feel like in the ninth game he had legend holds that he hit a, a very loud out uh, back to the track or even right up against the wall. But uh, Ron Fairley is joining us now, the, the first of two segments that uh, Red is kind enough to uh, have with us this evening here on the Hot Stove Show and uh, Ron, you've, you've obviously been a, a pretty busy man. We are, we're looking at the cover of your new book, A Fairly At-Bat, My 50 Years in Baseball, yep. uh, from the batter's box to the broadcast booth. Uh, can you tell us about the labor of love of, of writing this book? And you have led one of the great baseball lives. There's plenty of good stuff in here. Well, you know, you know for years, you know, I told stories on the air, and some I could tell, some I couldn't. But, but <laughs> nevertheless, I had a lot of people that said that, Gee, you should you should write the book, and I said no, nah, I wasn't going to do that. And then I got tired of playing golf so much during, during my retirement. I said, well, maybe I, I ought to sit down and start writing. And uh, sure enough, I I started from the very beginning and started filling in holes and remembering games and uh, look back on some really important games that I played in, and I started writing about them. And the next thing you know, I. I got into it. It took me about a year and a half to 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 finish the book, but uh, and I found uh, a writer that would uh, that helped me. Uh, I wrote the book and then turned it over to him, and he reorganized some of the stories. But uh, it turned out I, I wanted to have something that someone could get a laugh, laugh out of. Uh, it's not a Jim Bouton book. It's not, it's not a tell-all thing type uh, type of a book. It's it's things that that you would never read about in accounts of the game the following day. I mean, things that were said on the field, in the dugout, or when the game was over, that uh, that people will, that might get a chuck a lot of it. And I, and I think I did a pretty good job. You mentioned Dave a moment ago. What was it like broadcasting with Dave Niehaus through the years? Well, Dave, it, well, first of all, you have to understand, Dave loved the Mariners. Hmm. I mean, he was, he was 100% behind those guys. And the thing that was funny was is that the things that Dave Dave would say when he was off the air that I got a big I got a great big kick out of. But he was such a fan that he, he had to bring somebody in from the bullpen and we'll break for commercial timeout and we'll be right back. And then Dave would say, "You God, oh my, why are they bringing that guy? <laughs> I hadn't got anybody out." You know, and then come back on the air and then holy cow, here comes so and so. What a great job you know, he would go. He'd go just the completely other way around, but but he would he would that would be one of the things. That and the other thing is, Dave did not have a very good sense of direction. And in spring training, for an example, when we came out of Peoria, there the, the complex. If you go to the right when you leave our booth, you walk back into the into the press box. When the game was over, you go to the left to get on the elevators and go down, get in the parking lot, take off, and go wherever you're going to go for dinner. I always waited for Dave to to leave the, the the booth first, because about four or five times every spring, 
Dave would come out of the out of the booth and he would go to the right, back into the press box, and I just let him go. <laughs> and then I turn around, and say, hey Dave, this way. And then he always told me what I could go do to myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I got I got a kick out of that, and I love it. And I, I Dave and I had a lot of fun together. We really did. Big Red Dan Wilson here, and and uh, I know. Hi, oh, how are you? I'm fine. How have you been? Doing very well, thank you. And I know over the course of, of, of my career, I was lucky uh, to, to hear probably a lot of the stories that are in the book kind of firsthand, and I know that stories in baseball get passed down, and, and we love that. But, you know, looking back, are your, are some of your better stories as a player or are they as a broadcaster? Where, where does it stack up uh, in, in terms of the, your stories that, that uh, you come across in the book? Well, I, uh, there, I think there's a little bit of a mix, and I think more of them – you can attest to as a player. Yeah, I mean, I, I miss the clubhouse. Yeah, the, the 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 banter that goes on in in the in the clubhouse, and you know as well as I do what what guys do uh, on and off the field that you, you really get a, a, a good chuckle at. Uh, and and if you played on, and don't make it what major league team you played on. Uh, every one of them have stories. In fact, from the very beginning of of, of baseball. There have been more characters that are involved in baseball, I think, than any other sport. They've been around longer, and uh, I just think that there are more characters, and the more people find out about them, the more you're going to have some fun. In fact, when the Cubs became a professional team, they did that back in 1876. That was the same time that Custer was at the Little Bighorn, <laughs> kind of give you a baseball reference uh, as to when the Cubs got And we've had characters ever since then. And they're relentless in that clubhouse. Oh well, yeah. I mean, I mean, things that, that went on in, in the clubhouse and things were some of the stuff was really good. And then they, sometimes it even transferred out onto the field. And a, an example is that Koufax was pitching. You know, whenever he pitched, we had a pitcher in our, on our ball club by the name of, of Pete Rickard, and Pete was a left-handed pitcher and had pitched the major leagues for about. Uh, Oh, 10 or 11 years, mostly with Baltimore. But when he was with the Dodgers, he was the long man in the bullpen. And the only time Pete would go out and have a few drinks would be the night before Koufax. That <laughs> Sandy was going to, you know, get knocked out in the second or third inning. Well, Pete went out this one uh, one afternoon, and lo and behold, Sandy got in trouble in the first inning. And they got Pete up in the bullpen. And Sandy got out of the inning uh, in the second inning. Uh, Sandy went back out to the mound and he got in trouble again. And Alston got him up for the second time and went out to the mound that day. I have to be playing first base. And so when Alston got to the mound, there were three of us that are standing there. He had Alston, Koufax and myself. And it was a hot day, temperature above 95 degrees. And Alston looked at Sandy and he says, how do you feel? And Sandy says, better than the guy you have warming up. <laughs> <laughs> And that's when Austin just turned around and walked back on, on into the dugout. We eventually got hot. We scored some runs, and Sandy was the winning pitcher. Ron Fairley that are... never appeared. That never appeared in the box score or anything you read <laughs> about the accounts of the game. That's fantastic. Ron Fairley is our guest here on the hot stove. And uh, Ron, can you uh, describe for us, for those who have not had a chance to uh, pick up your book uh, quite yet, uh, Fairley at Bat? Can you tell us and describe a little bit about this picture we see of? You and Dave in a camera well, both wearing headsets with the one differentiator that Dave was wearing a 
batting helmet with his headset? <laughs> well, <laughs> Dave, Dave says, I can't do the game from down there without a helmet. And I said, why not? He says, if the ball comes over there, how am I going to get out of the way of it? And I just said, why don't you duck? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but he, I, I, had, I had to laugh at him. We did not have a screen in front of us. So, I mean, the fact that he wore a helmet, that, it, just, it just looked kind of funny as far as I was concerned. But, uh, like I said, we had, we, Dave and I had a lot of laughs. One of the things that he did in spring training that I really got a chuckle out of was that he, had, he kept wearing every spring these old sandals. And they were old. They were getting to be kind of ratty. And so I kept mentioning to him, well, you ought to get a new pair. So finally one day we went over after a ball game and we got the, a new pair of sandals. About two or three days later, we had to go to Scottsdale. And I picked him up at his apartment to go over to the, the ballpark. And I happened to notice he had one pair of new shoes and one old shoe on. <laughs> and I didn't say much, but I got to Scottsdale and, I said, Dave. I said, I, I like I like your your shoes. I, they really look sharp. And he looked down. He saw he had one old one on and one new one on. He says, I got. Before he looked down there, he said, Man, I got a pair just like this back at the hotel. So I, I got a big kick out of that because he didn't realize that he had one old one and on one new one on. So until he got to the ballpark, and then he was a little embarrassed. No, until you said something. That's uh... yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, he once again he told me what I could do. <laughs> uh, well, this is just the start, uh, Ron. But we, we, we all—it was all in you. It was all in fun. We, sure. we we laughed about stuff like that. So that's terrific. The yeah. other thing that Dave did, a, a couple of the post-game shows, uh, they decided that they wanted us to be on camera, and so we had to turn and 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 face the camera where the the field was in the background, and Dave in the process of putting on his jacket and, and, and putting his headset on and picking up the hand mic, he picked my microphone up. <laughs> and so we did the post-game show, and I didn't say one word. Because <laughs> Dave had my microphone. <laughs> and there, 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 was, there was another time where we did the post-game show, and we were supposed to alternate. Dave does the first play, I do the second play, and Dave the third, and I do the fourth, so on. And there were about six or seven plays that had highlights of the game. And Dave was in a role. He he did he did every one of the plays. <laughs> and during we're and I'm standing there with a smile on my face, just waiting for an opening. And then some guy in the truck would say to me, Jump in there, Ron. And I couldn't do anything. And the next guy would say, Ron, shut up. You're talking too much. <laughs> I, had a, I had a rough time trying to keep a straight face. And Dave's doing the highlights to all of these games. And, he, and there was no opening. And that was when the, one of the guys down the truck said, when Dave wants the postgame show to be over, the big boy is headed to the bar. And the postgame show is going to be over real quick. And that's just about the way he, he did it sometimes. And, and, but he was very good. I mean, he was never stuck for words, and he was always always right on cue with everything. The other thing Dave did that I got a chuckle out of, he kept a, a, a little, like a like a timer that had sand in it that you turn over like a three-minute egg thing, and that was, he would put that on. 
mind him to repeat the score when the, the little glass was empty. I never saw him turn it over. <laughs> he, he, he had that thing sticking out there and never turned that thing over. I, you will laugh for days, of course, when you hear Ron Fairley speak. We were so glad that he joined us a couple of years ago here on the Hot Stove. A reminder, if you were needing the name of his book once again, which he wrote a few years ago. Fairly at bat, my 50 years in baseball from the batter's box to the broadcast booth. A tremendous read and just more and more of just stories like that. When we come back in the hot stove, we hear more from uh, one of the Mariners' favorites, Ron Fairley, after this timeout. All things Mariners, all off-season. The Hot Stove on 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle Sports app. Well, we continue our conversation with late, great Ron Fairley from this very program a couple of years ago. Of course, Red had a just sensational Major League career, 21 seasons in the Majors, twice an All-Star, the only player in the history of the game who can say that they were an All-Star for both teams in Canada. Pretty impressive stuff for Ron Fairley, who played against just some of the all-time greats. And when you connect the dots a little bit, you can't talk about his career without talking about playing against Teddy Ballgame, Ted Williams. And you, you can't talk about Ted Williams on this broadcast or this air anyway without talking about uh, one of our favorite interviews uh, in the history of Mariners Radio, and that is the interview between the Hall of Famer and our Hall of Famer, Dave Niehaus. We start with that here for the second part of the Ron Fairley interview. I can't say in my own mind, honestly, that I think I was the best hitter. But I said, if they'll put me in a group of Ruth and Gehrig and Simmons and Fox and DiMaggio and Greenberg and Heilman and Cobb, I said, that'll be good enough for me. And uh, I think that uh, that's the way I really feel. Happy to have you back with us once again on the Hot Stove, Aaron Goldsmith, Dan Wilson, and Gary Hill. That was a piece of interview from Dave Niehaus and Ted Williams. We're here with Ron Fairley. And, Red, you have a portion in your book about Ted Williams. Is he the greatest hitter in baseball history, do you think? Well, you know, I'll tell you how good he was. There were a couple of managers that would not allow his their pitchers to watch him take batting practice. <laughs> now, what do, you, what do you think that does? I mean, it was too, it was, it was too demoralizing. Ted knew the game of hitter versus pitcher better than any player I have ever been around. Ted was also the most domineering type of person. I mean, he was John Wayne on steroids. Uh, I mean, there was nothing that he did not know about the game. I'll give, I'll give an example. In the 1959 All-Star game, it was played in the Coliseum in Los Angeles, and in that game, Drysdale threw a pitch to Ted in, in on his hands. And Ted popped the ball up about 430 feet away. The right field fence in the Coliseum was 440 feet. And they ran back. The outfitter ran back and caught the ball about 430 feet away. That ended the inning, and Don had a smile on his face like, whoa, whoa, I thought, I thought it was gone. Ten years later, Ted is managing the Washington Senator, and they're playing in Vero Beach at Holman Stadium in spring training, and Don and I are standing in right field. The bus pulls up. Ted gets off the bus, and we walk over to say hi to him. And Don walks up and says, hi, Ted. He didn't say hello, how do you do, or you know what. 
He says, what were you laughing at in the 1959 All-Star game when I popped up that lousy pitch you threw me? And Don had to think about it for a second. He says, you know, I, I threw the pitch, and he said, I kind of I smiled because when you hit it, I thought the ball was gone. Ted says, I thought I got enough of it, too, but I just wanted to know, what, what, why were you laughing? And that bothered him so much. Then when we finished talking, we went back into the outfield area, and Don turned to me and he says, Ron, I've had a lot of batters swing at pitches that I've thrown, but that was the most vicious swing anyone ever took off of me. I just kind of, just a side story, but Ted, Ted knew the game of hitter versus pitcher better than anybody else. Bob Lemon will attest to that, Hall of Fame pitcher. He says he would, got on, he got on the batting, you know, on the, on the, on the mound and started his windup when he got about halfway through his delivery. He knew what, and Ted knew, he knew that Ted knew what was coming. So I never fooled him on a pitch and he was, he was tough to, tough to fool uh, on anything. So yeah, I look back, and when you talk to guys that, that had to pitch to Ted Williams, uh, boy, they didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. And he, like I said, I mean, he helped me out one time uh, when he asked me, who was the toughest pitcher in the National League for you to hit? And I said, Juan Marshall. And he said, well, what makes him so tough? I mean, Ted was starting to get mad at Juan. He'd never met him. And so he says, how did you how, how, how does he get you out? And I said, any way he wants to. And then Ted's response was, why do you let him? I said, what do you mean? Well, he says, what does he throw? I said, he throws a fastball, curveball, slider, and, and, and changeup. And he says, take two of those pitches away for me. Either look fastball, slider, something coming to play hard, or something that's coming soft, changeup, or a curveball. Change the odds. You've just improved yourself 50%. And if you get the pitch, hit it, hit it hard somewhere. Well, you know what? It's kind of funny about that is – it started working. I mean, he says, you're an out man anyway, so try to put the odds a little bit more in your favor. <laughs> so I tried that, and sure enough, I started getting some hits off of Juan Marshall. But those are the kind of things that, uh, that, that Ted did. I mean, you'd have to be around him to, to understand how domineering he is. If you put Ted in, the op, in, in, an, uh, in a room with, say, the top 75 executives in, in, the, in the country, within a half an hour, he would dominate the room. And that was just the way that he was. Red, you made the All-Star team in 1973. The NL team that you played on, Joe Morgan, Hank Aaron, Johnny Bench, Willie Mays, Willie Stargell, what was that clubhouse like? Well, <laughs> well, first of all, you had future Hall of Famers all over the place. Uh, in there, and and their goal was we have to do. They were for the National League; they wanted to win, and uh, that's that's just the way that they played. They played that hard, but they're all good guys. I still see uh, Johnny Bench every now and then. I call Mays every year during Christmas and wish him a happy New Year and, and a Merry Christmas. Uh, some of the guys that uh, that uh, I played uh, against for so many years are not around anymore, and I I miss them, but. Uh, they were they were regular guys that had more talent than uh, than you can ever imagine in that one room. I mean, good golly, who would want to pitch to a lineup like that? <laughs> that uh, they had so much power up and down the lineup. You know, Ron, uh, I have to ask you about this because you're, there just are not many people who could talk about these players that Gary has brought up. You you were you were 19 when you broke into the big leagues, 19 years old. 
I, I think I just turned 20. Okay. Uh, less than two weeks into your big league career, you faced the Cardinals and you faced Stan Musial. Now, it wasn't Stan in his prime, This isn't, this, but it's still Stan the man. This is still, we talked about Ted, this is still one of the greatest hitters of all time. Can you remember what it was like two weeks into your major league career and you're facing a guy that I have to imagine you had seen and heard of uh, for your whole life and now you're right there, you're sharing a field with him at Dodger Stadium? I, I just would, I would love to know what that was like, if you can remember all the way back to uh, two weeks into your big league career in 1958. I'll tell you, 1959, we were in St. Louis, and Stan was struggling. He was not, he was not, not doing well. He was not Stan Musial. And uh, we went to Sportsman Park in St. Louis. When I, I went early because I heard that he was going to take extra batting practice. So I want to go out there and watch him. So he got in the cage, and he hit a few balls, and he – you know, hit a flazy fly ball, hit a ground ball here. I mean, he wasn't – he was off a little bit. And he turned around and he looked at me and says, Ron, what am I doing wrong? And I, I kind of started to laugh. Musial is going to ask me what he's doing wrong? You know, I said, Stan, the only thing I can think of is it's not 8 o'clock yet. It wasn't game time. And that night he hit a pair of doubles and drove in three runs. But I got a kick out of that. And then – that same series I talked to him, he says, Ron, people come out to the ballpark to watch me hit home runs. But he says, for the next two weeks, I'm going to concentrate on hitting the ball up the middle and the other way until I get my timing down once again. And so I followed him. For the next two weeks, Stan hit only one home run, uh, but he was batting 435. He told me when we took batting practice that day, I think I could hit 400, but people come out to the ballpark to watch me try to hit home runs. But in that two-week period, Stan hit 435 because I kept track of that. And I've never, I've never forgotten that. And he got his timing back because in the next week or two after that, he hit a half a dozen home runs. And he had his timing back and was, was going at it again. The one thing that Ted said, or not Ted, but uh, Stan said was, you, to pull the ball constantly, your timing has to be too perfect. And you have to be able to hit the ball up the middle the other way occasionally just to keep your timing right. And the more I thought about that, it made a lot of sense. Today we see these guys that are up there hitting, and they're, they pull everything, pull everything. Well, their timing has to be too perfect. And the guys that are dead pull hitters, they, they're not going to hit for very much of a high average. The only guy that I can think of, that was a pull hitter that hit for a high average was Ted Williams. I mean, Ted says you can take the whole ball club and put them over there. I'll still hit it. <laughs> and, 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 and that, that was Ted. That, that's, that's the, that was his mindset. In fact, he had one game in, in, in Fenway Park where he decided just to prove the point. He had two or three doubles off the green monster. He said, see, I can go the other way if I want to. But he says they, people don't come out and watch me hit singles or hit the ball the other way. So that was it. He pulled the ball. And he, like I said, you can put the whole the entire field, uh, the entire lineup and the old time dugout. You can put everybody in the outfield. I don't care. I'll still hit it. Red, we got to see, obviously, Lou Pinella as a manager here for a long time in Seattle. But can you tell us about Lou Pinella, the player? Well, Lou was, it was pretty much the same kind of player as he was a manager. He was very fiery, he was explosive. Uh, Lou was not an easy out. Now, you look at Lou's numbers, and I mean, he's right there in the middle of the pack, but what you don't see is how many games he won. 
or however many times he moved runners from first to third or drove a run in. He was hit the ball up the middle, hit the ball the other way quite a bit, did not have the kind of power that you expect to see in a guy in the Yankee lineup. But Lou was the kind of guy that you had to be really careful with him because he could beat you. I mean, you can make him look bad, and then all of a sudden you get in the crucial part of the ball game, bam, that's when he got his hits. It's not how many hits you get, it's when you get them that counts. So Lou was a heck of a player. But I loved Lou as an announcer. Or as, as, as an announcer, I loved it. And the thing is that I got a kick out of Lou is that there'd be times where we'd be doing the game and one of the clubhouse guys would come up and tap me on the shoulder. And I'd turn my microphone off and they said, Ron, Lou needs a ride home. <laughs> we live close together. We live close together over in the Bellevue area. And Anita, his wife, had enough. She took the car and went home, and <laughs> Lou was on his own. <laughs> I had I had to bring I had to bring Lou home, and and he would he would tell me things about the game and what went on that there's no way I could put that on the air. But I I just I loved I loved those times, especially when the when the Mariner did not play well, because he kept banging on my dashboard, and I thought he was going to break the dashboard a few times. Nothing uh, better than uh, a Lou story told by Ron Fairley, Gary. Oh, it's uh, the imagery of Lou <laughs> sitting in a passenger seat and just wailing away on the dashboard after a loss. That is the very best. It does not get better than that. Well, our uh, Mariners radio archives are, are rich and deep, and uh, they are even more so with uh, that two-part interview from a couple of years ago on this very program with the late, great Ron Fairley. Gary, so glad you had that, and uh, so glad we could break it out right now after, uh, sadly, Ron's passing uh, at the end of October. So thanks for sharing that with us. Absolutely. It's always great to hear Ron's stories, and it will it will live together. Uh, it will live in the archives and live on the podcast as well. That's right. we got plenty more to get to here on the Hot Stove coming up just after this. Back to more of the Hot Stove on 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle Sports app. Well, sign up your little sluggers for the 2020 Mariners Kids Club MVP memberships are only $25 and include a Mariners backpack and cap, mini moose bobblehead, and dollar ticket vouchers, and exclusive MVP experiences. Plus, new this year, the MVP Mariners will receive members will receive 10% off select kids apparel at Mariners team stores. You can register right now at mariners.com slash kids. We begin to wrap things up here on the Hot Stove Show. Aaron Goldsmith, Shannon Dreher, Gary Hill, and Mariners Hall of Famer Dan Wilson. Uh, you know, guys, this, is, as we knew, would be uh, not a particularly active offseason for Jerry DePoto. Uh, but he did sign a couple of new pitchers, one of which I did not know goes by the name which he goes by. Did did you guys know that Carl Edwards Jr. was actually C.J. Edwards? I thought it was something DePoto invented. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he, he wanted to brand him himself? Yes. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't put that past Jerry. That's on the table. Uh, but based on what Jerry has said, C.J. told him very specifically, Gary, that it, it is C.J., not Carl. Carl, who's kind of, I mean, Carl's a guy. I mean, yeah. He's a real no, guy. He's, he's <laughs> definitely been a guy. Yeah, he's... he's yeah, World Series ring. He's pitched in the postseason a number of years with the Cubs. Flamethrower. High leverage, I think they like yeah, to say. Yeah, that's that's a good term. Well, we uh, get a little bit of a 90-second breakdown on the move that brought C.J. Edwards to Seattle under uh, multiple years of control from Jerry himself. From 2015 to 18, one of the highest strikeout pitchers in all of uh, Major League Baseball, I think 12th overall among all big league relievers in the strikeout rate. 
Uh, he still maintains that that strikeout ability. Obviously, 2019 not a very good season for him, which is why we were able to get him. And you know, it's a maybe that 16-17 season or 16-17-18. He was as good a setup guy for a premium team pitching in a leverage role for the Cubs that, that, as you were going to find, was worth about a win and a half a year in in war between, I think, 17 and 18 on average, which also placed them in a a different level of pitcher. It's hard to to generate that type of war value as a a bullpen guy. There aren't very many of them. And he still is going to pitch this year at just 28 years old. His fastball reaches into the upper 90s. He's got elite spin on his breaking ball. You know, and he's never been a guy that, that goes out there and just drills the strike zone. He is a stuffed pitcher. And, you know, we believe that there are a few adjustments that we can help him make that will get him back to being more consistent with that stuff. Uh, great reviews on his makeup. He's a fun, engaging guy on the telephone. And uh, we're really looking forward to having him here. Uh, among the, the, the many things that have happened this offseason, one of the things we were looking forward to most is what you see it, it with CJ is, is bounce-back candidates who have a chance to be a part of what we're doing as we move forward, which we believe he does. That's a good breakdown from Jerry on CJ Edwards, who figures to be Dan pitching at the back end of this bullpen for the Mariners in 2020. And you know, Jerry touched on this, and we've seen this. Hey, this is not anything new. When you get a player who has had success, who is coming off of a down year, both because of performance and health, the motivation is normally pretty far off the charts, and hopefully that bodes well for the Mariners. Yeah, I think that's a big reason that they're banking on. And, and the guy, who you know, it's not like he hasn't been there before. He knows uh, how, he, how he can get back there. He knows... He's been in situations in those high leverage situations, so he's a very valuable piece, a very interesting piece, really, because he comes back and 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 as you mentioned, comes back with a little bit of fire, a little bit of vengeance, and and uh, he could really stand to be a big part of that bullpen, especially late in the ball game, and that's something that the Mariners will definitely welcome late in the game. I think also the key there is multiple years of control. Jerry did the same thing with Kendall Graveman who is joining the rotation for the Mariners coming off Tommy John with the A's. The key here is that he's bringing in players who aren't just here for 2020 and wants to have them be a part of a longer sense of regaining form for the ball club. And it's you are taking an opportunity. This year is about the younger players. That is the priority. And at the same time, you have the opportunity where you have spaces to take a little bit of a risk on some of the risk-reward guys. We've seen them do that before. And... Uh, Kendall Graveman, in his case, they're going to need that stability for at least a little while. You don't know what's going to happen with the rotation from the start. But uh, let's bear in mind that Jerry DePoto has also said he's still looking for another reliever and more of a veteran type, somebody with some experience, and possibly another arm for the rotation, maybe a swing type guy, somebody that could give them some innings if needed with some of the younger pitchers that they have if they're not ready or to hold a spot for, say, a Logan Gilbert or something like that. So I, I think there are still moves to come along those lines. Yeah, you figure we'll be seeing Logan at some point uh, this year, assuming he continues to progress like he did at a pretty rocket form uh, last year. Well, that'll do it for us. And tonight's Hot Stove Show, our thanks to all who joined us, Austin Nola from the Mariners Care Community Tour, Brian DeLunis as well joining us from his home, Mariners bullpen coach. So for Shannon Dreyer. Mariners Hall of Famer Dan Wilson. For Gary Hill and Demetrius Jack Wilder, I'm Aaron Goldsmith. We'll talk to you next week on the Hot Stove Show.